It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I enjoy, actually, it took me about three hours to get down here from Durham this morning, and I have four boys who are eight and under, <laughs> so car time is like relaxing time for me at this stage in life, so uh, it was beautiful drive down, and, and again, I'm really glad to be here to, to preach to you this morning, and I was told that I'm supposed to dismiss the kindergarten and first graders, which I see are already happening, so uh, I'm glad for that. Um, yes, we're going to look at this passage from Ecclesiastes this morning, and uh, I, I know that if I were in your seat, you'd be thinking, oh boy, uh, this is obscure and perhaps even appears random and from a book that maybe you've read before, maybe you haven't. And if you have read it, great, I'm thrilled. If you haven't, I hope you do. And my hope by spending a little bit of time in this passage with you this morning is hopefully to give you a sense of how could you read this book if you haven't. And if you have read it and you find it baffling, my hope is that perhaps after our time today, you would feel more comfortable sitting down with this book and understanding what it has to say to you. And because essentially we could say that this book is a journey. Ecclesiastes is, is is a journey. The main figure in this book is called the preacher, and it's it's really him giving us a guided tour of his experiences of what he calls life under the sun. He's just simply reporting to us what he has seen and understood and experienced and discovered. But my guess is if you were to sit down and read this book from cover to cover, it's 12 chapters, you would probably come away with two apparently contradictory impressions. The majority of the book, as I said, is this guided tour of the preacher's repeated efforts to outlast or to overcome the realities of life. His efforts to make sense of it. And it's a life that is described again and again as fleeting, of even discouraging and elusive. And time and again, throughout the book, the preacher has this phrase that he says again and again, and we see it in verse 8 of chapter 12 in our passage this morning, where he concludes over and over, all is vanity, a chasing after the wind. So that's the one main impression you would get. But then at the very same time, peppered throughout the book are passages that hold out the possibility of joy. Not less than six times, the preacher instructs us, To rejoice, to find joy in your work and in your relationships and in the basic, normal, everyday things that God gives you for your good. And so at the same time, here we have this book that's ruthlessly honest about the realities of life and at the same time is profoundly hopeful and full of joy. And the question for us that I want to address, that I think this whole book is meant to get you to ask, is how can you hold those two viewpoints together? Is it possible to be realistic and honest about the pain and brokenness of life as we know it, and at the same time to have joy and hope? That's what we're going to try to answer this morning. And because you get these two impressions from the book, I think how that would hit us as as a group is I think it would actually divide us into two groups of people. On the one hand, 
depending on your life or your, your temperament or your life experiences, I think you may resonate more with one of those perspectives the book gives us than the other. And so what I want to do for a minute is, is just get you to think about this. I think we could think of this in two basic groups. First of all, there would be the group of you who we call the hopeless pessimists. <laughs> you're, you're the group of people who pride yourselves on calling a spade a spade. Nobody is going to sugarcoat things for you. Uh, you have no problem dealing a tough blow either to yourself or to someone else. And you are not going to allow uh, anybody to convince you that that life is uh, just all peaches and cream. You're just that's just not you. Then there's the other group, and we'll call you the, the naive optimists. You're the person who is just convinced things are going to get better. They just are. And, and you're sticking to it. And my guess is you you may struggle mightily to know what to do when things in your life or in the life of someone you love doesn't work right. You might find it very hard to remain naively optimistic because it begins to implode when you realize or have to experience life simply doesn't always go the way we would like it to. Or maybe you're like me and you wildly swing back and forth between those two points of view <laughs> almost on a daily basis. And I think the passage that we're looking at this morning, it comes at the very end of the book. And the preacher understands these two perspectives. And I think in this passage, he's answering for us this question. How can you be realistic about life as we know it and joyful at the same time? That's why I picked this passage, because I think he actually helps you understand how to read the whole book in the two basic instructions that we'll look at here in a minute. But what I want us to do is to look this morning at this passage to try to answer this question. How are we to live in view of the possibility of joy and the realities of life? That's the question. And he does, the preacher answers this question for us by calling us to do basically three things. He's going to call us to reevaluate everything about our lives. He's calling us to rejoice and he's calling us to remember. So first I want us to look at this, this call to reevaluate, to reevaluate your entire life. How does he make this point? Look with me here. If you look in verse 9 of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 12, we see the words youth. We also see it in a couple of other verses here. But in particular, verse 9 of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And then verse 1 of chapter 12, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. I want us to notice that word youth in addition to the word before in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. If you notice in chapter 12, verse 1, we see, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before. That's in verse 1. Verse 2, remember your creator before the sun and the moon, etc. And then again in verse 6, remember your creator before the silver cord, etc. Now, we'll get to what those verses are talking about in a moment. But what I want you to see here for a moment is, when you take these two words of youth and before... They set the tone for the entire passage. 
And they are meant to create for us an arresting passage. A passage that's meant to say, you need to stop. You need to reevaluate everything about your life. That is what he's trying to get us to do here. And what's his point in doing that? I think what he's trying to get us to do is to urge every one of us to get the right foundations in place for living life as soon as possible. You might think that these words youth here really are for the, the younger people. And he's coming along and saying, you know, you young people, you just don't get it. <laughs> the older people, they lived, they're wiser, but you young people, you just don't get it. That's not what he's saying. I think that'd be a very superficial way to read this because all we need to do is look at verse 8 of chapter 11 where he says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. What he's talking about here, this applies to anyone and everyone at any point in your life. And again, these words of youth and before are meant to arrest you, to get you to, to stop and to reevaluate. And in other words, he's trying to get you to ask, what are you building your life on? And that is not a, that is not just a theoretical question for the preacher. It's a question he's wrestled with deeply earlier in the book. For example, if we were to turn back to chapter two, listen to what he says about what he's, he's learned about all his efforts to be wise and discerning and to understand life under the sun. He says this, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? See, if there is anyone who could outrun the questions and problems of life in his own strength, the preacher was the one who could do it throughout the book. He is described as a person with unmatched financial and intellectual capacity. However, by the end of the book, he's come to realize that his finances and his intellect could not outrun the realities of life under the sun. His whole life needed to be reevaluated. He realizes he needs an entirely new foundation upon which to build his life. And that foundation couldn't be built on his intellect or his portfolio. And he came to see he was building his life on the wrong things. And you need to understand those things aren't bad things. If we look at this book throughout it as a whole, what he's realized is the things he was looking to to build his life on were never meant to bear the weight of his trust. He's come to realize they have limits. They are not God. And he was treating them as if they were. So then the question is, well, what are these right foundations that he's calling us to build our lives on? Look with me in verse 7 and 8. He says there, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity See, in these verses, he gives you two basic instructions to rejoice and to remember. These are the two basic instructions he gives you for navigating life under the sun. And this passage, those two basic instructions are the preacher's answer either to your your hopeless pessimism or your naive optimism. And what he wants to do, what this passage is meant to do in your life 
is to make you into a joyful realist. Now, what's a joyful realist? If I, if I had to put it into one sentence, this is what it would be. A joyful realist is able to delight in good things without being mastered by them and is able to face the realities of life without being undone by them. Are you a person who can rejoice and delight in the good things in life without being mastered by them? And are you a person who can enter into the brokenness and pain and despair and discouragement of this life without being undone by them? In order to deal with that, to become that kind of person, we need to look more closely here at these two instructions of to rejoice and to remember. So secondly, you need to learn to rejoice. And the first thing I want you to see here in verse 9 and 10, verse 9, listen to what he says. He says here, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment in verse 9. What's he saying here? The first thing we need to learn about what it means to rejoice is that you live before the gaze of God. When he says that God will bring you into judgment for all these things, the writer of Hebrews expresses the same idea like this. He says, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He's saying that we all live before the gaze of God. And here's the question. If we live before the gaze of God, what is he looking for? What is he looking for in our lives? And when you hear those words of verse 9 again, when he says that God will bring you into judgment, let me ask you, what comes to mind? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you read that? In other words, what I'm trying to get you to, to look at very closely here in verse 9 is, what are the these things that he's talking about? When he says, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. If I'm honest, and maybe you're, you're in the same place, the first thing that comes to mind for me is all the bad things I do. All the places I come up short. The ways I fail to love him and to love my neighbor. All those things that haunt me, that continue to create uh, doubt and guilt and shame. But see, I want you to notice that in verse 8 and 9, they are governed by this idea of to rejoice. So what's the, what's the point here? The amount of joy and delight in your life is just as important to God as the amount of sin and disobedience in your life. Another way to put this is, in this passage, it's teaching you something that is pervasive in the Bible that I think we all too often miss and forget too quickly. And it's this, that in the Bible to rejoice is as much a command as to repent. That's what he's saying here. You see, he is not talking about your your sin and failure here that God is paying attention to that he's looking for. What he's looking for is. Rejoicing, delighting. One writer actually puts it like this. Enjoyment is not only permitted, it's commanded. It's not only an opportunity, it's a divine imperative. So the judgment of verse 9 isn't talking about your failure to repent of what you do wrong. 
It's talking about your failure to rejoice in God and his goodness. And here's the thing. My guess is if you're failing to rejoice, you're probably failing to repent, too. And I think you could probably flip it around and also say, if you're failing to repent, you're also probably failing to rejoice. They go together. Now, knowing that we live before the gaze of God leads us to the second thing we need to see here about what it means to rejoice. Look again at verse nine. He says, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. I think it'd be really easy to read that verse, verse nine, and think, think this. You know, to rejoice means I get to do what I want. I get to follow my own dreams, my own desires. Doesn't matter what the consequences are. Here is the Bible's endorsement of my life ambitions to do and think and live as I please. However, I think we would be very unwise to draw that conclusion because listen to what verse 10 says. It effectively eliminates that way of reading verse nine when it says remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. So then what does it mean to rejoice here? In a nutshell, it means this. It is a life lived from the heart. This idea here is it's reminiscent of Psalm 34, verse 7, where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's the point. Here's the point. What does it mean to rejoice? You see, rejoicing is the fruit of relationship with God. The reason that you lack joy in your heart and in your life is in effect because you have a relationship with someone or something else that's more beautiful to you and more important to you than being in relationship with God. The Bible has a monopoly on what true joy and rejoicing is. And that's what he's trying to unfold for us here in these verses. But it's a, it's a life lived from the heart. But how are we supposed to deal with that in light of, let's say, a passage like Jeremiah 17, 9, which says the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. See, if you struggle to rejoice, to live from the heart with joy and delight, it isn't because of your circumstances. It's like I said, you're delighting in someone or something more than God. That is the great deception. Of our hearts. That's the sickness of our hearts. That we have become deeply convinced that something or someone other than God will truly satisfy us. And I think that's the problem of the, the, the naive optimist. You probably have a perspective on life that says things are going to get better. And my guess is more often than not, we tend to look at created things to be that hope. But then on the other hand, there's the other version here of the hopeless pessimist who says nothing can satisfy us. Nothing can fix this. And we have to embrace that, embrace it, no matter how hard it is to accept. And you may have a very hard time delighting in God. You see, and the preacher has done both of these. 
And he has discovered that the only way to find joy is to lay hold of God. To get him, to delight in him, to rejoice in him for who he is. But here's, I think, the big question is, if a life of joy and rejoicing is lived from the heart, and yet our hearts are sick and deceived, how can we change? How do we get this new outlook on life? And the preacher's answer comes to us in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says to remember our creator. But what does it mean in verse 1 of chapter 12 when he says to remember your creator? You know, here, remember means much more than just an intellectual acknowledgement that God is somehow there, somewhere, doing something, and we have no idea what. To remember here is meant to have a very powerful, transforming effect on every area of your life. To remember God as your creator here is essentially saying that you will allow him to be the ultimate meaning maker in your life. To remember God as your creator is to simply to, to say that you are allowing him to interpret your life. That he must be the one who shapes your view of yourself, of other people, your circumstances, and even God himself. And it's ironic that throughout the entire book, the preacher has been trying to make sense of life on his own, in his own strength, only to discover that he can't. He has learned firsthand the antidote to living independent, self-reliant lives. You know, that's, that's our problem, is that we endeavor to live independent and self-reliant lives and the preacher is saying the antidote to that problem is to remember God as your creator. Now, let me try to illustrate this for you by giving you an, an example here of how I think this applies to, to our identity. Not only do we try to live in our own strength and make sense of life, but that even comes to bear on our identity. And I think we could put it like this, that our culture for a long time has celebrated the opportunity to do and be anything you want. That, that life is a journey towards self-discovery. That your self-image and your identity become deeply bound up with your performance, your experiences, your successes and your failures. That self-discovery and self-creation are really just two sides of the same coin. But I want you to think for a minute. That's a very insecure place to be. If you think about that long enough, that it is up to you to create yourself. That also means all your weaknesses, all your failings, all your limitations can screw up your self-creation. And you need something more than that. You need something more stable than that, that can handle what you're really like. So just think for a minute, when have you felt the most secure? with who you really are. My guess is that for many of us, and, and I realize that there, there are definite exceptions to this, but that for many of us, the place where you feel the most secure and content with who you are is when you're at home with family. That perhaps more than anywhere else, when you're at home, you know you are loved and accepted. Listen how one writer reflects on this. He says, in reflecting on my own life, I observe that those times when I have seen most in touch with myself, when my self-identity has been most secure, 
have been those times when I was known by another and it was accepted by that person. My assumption now is that one search for self ultimately is fruitless because it seeks to find that which can only be given by another. In short, we may seek self-identity and hope to find ourselves, but the hope for result never occurs through our own efforts. We seek ourselves, but are finally found. One's identity is the gift of another's love. Now, I want you to take that, that idea and that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is meant to drive that point home. That the preacher wants you to realize you cannot, in your own strength, create meaning and significance that can last. You may seek to make sense of life under the sun in your own strength, but you can't. That is the whole practical point of Ecclesiastes. And that's why in this passage, he's calling you to rejoice and to remember God is your creator. It is a gift to be received from God. You cannot find it in your own strength. But then not only does he call you to remember your creator here. But you might well ask, why does he call us to remember God as our creator in this passage? God's described in a number of ways in the Old Testament. He's described as a king or a shepherd or a father. And if I had to pick, given the, the tenor and, and kind of the theme of this passage, it's kind of uh, dismal in chapter 12. Things are not looking very good. I, I kind of like the idea of remember God as your father. <laughs> I, I kind of I would like a hug as I read this passage. But so why does he say, remember your creator? And I think we need to look here in verses one through seven of chapter 12. And, and in order to answer that question. Because really, in, in verse eight of chapter 11, he's, he tells you to remember the days of darkness. And here they are. In chapter 12. And I think it, it can, it's a bit obscured in your English Bible, but th these verses really are a poem. And they mirror the poem that we see in chapter one of, of this book. And what's interesting is the poem in chapter one describes life under the sun as an endless cycle. The sun rises. The moon sets. There's this endless cycle. There's nothing new under the sun. It's a rat race. You never can get ahead. But here... We come to this poem and all of a sudden we discover that cycle is going to come to an end. And these verses can be a bit of a challenge to, to interpret. There's a lot of imagery and, and I just don't have time to go into it and, and unfold all of it for you. But I think if we take them as a whole, it's not hard to get the main thrust. And it's simply that things are going from bad to worse. <laughs> Look in verse one. It, it, the second half of verse one describes the weariness and fatigue of life, especially as we get older. Verse two, it describes the darkening of the sun and the moon. And, you know, elsewhere in the Bible, that imagery is, is described as you to describe the day of the Lord. When God one day will come back and make everything right again, his justice will reign. His grace will bring new life. A new heavens and a new earth. But then also you look in verse three and five through five describes these images of catastrophe of dashed 
hopes, social breakdown, fear, anxiety, and even death. And then verse 6 and 7, it, it describes the shattering of these everyday items. These items that are described in verse 6 are really images of everyday tools that you do work with to make life happen. And it's falling apart, only to see in verse 7 that life itself is undone. So the point I want you to, to, to grasp here is this, is this, this poem here, is, it's a picture of the unraveling of creation. And the question is, well, why? Why are things going from bad to worse? And the preacher earlier in chapter 7 gives us his own answer. Chapter 7, verse 29, he says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In other words, every one of us resists living in dependence upon God. And what he's saying is the reason why things are falling apart is that you and I, we are schemers. You know what it means to be a schemer, according to the Bible? Essentially, it's you and I, our hearts are bent towards figuring out some scheme or strategy to live independently of God. To make our own lives, to bring meaning and significance to them on our own efforts. And unless you can come to grips with the fact that you are a schemer, you will never rejoice and you will never find the comfort of remembering God as your creator. And it's at this point that we're in a position to, to see why he calls you to remember God as your creator. Because the answer you need that he's trying to get you to see is that you need a creator God who can make a new creation. That's why he's calling you to remember God as your creator. Because to remember him as your creator is to believe that he's the only one who can undo what we have done. You see, in the beginning, God created, he spoke things into existence, and he is calling us to remember that God again, because he's the only one who can do it again. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 65, verse 17, he writes, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And here we see, we see this irony in the beauty of God's self-revelation in the Old Testament. Is that it gives us this incredibly close connection between God as our creator and our redeemer. Again, in Isaiah chapter 44, he writes, Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Even in the Old Testament, God reveals himself as our creator and our redeemer. And that good news finds its fullest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. He embodies God as our creator and our redeemer in the flesh. God getting personally and painfully involved in your hopeless pessimism and your naive optimism. You see, the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, our creator and redeemer has taken it upon himself to get messy. To experience life as you and I know it. To get painfully and personally involved at infinite cost to himself. 
The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God is starting over. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus. This is Colossians chapter 1. He says, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then just a couple of verses later, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is your creator and Jesus is your redeemer. And now you may be here this morning and you may be thinking, okay, maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you haven't. Either way, you may be thinking to yourself, you know, what I really need is more money. And that, that might be really true. Or you might be thinking, you know, I need a better job. And that really might be true. Or perhaps you're thinking you need a better body. Or you need a spouse. Or maybe you think you might need a better spouse. Or you might need more well-behaved children. I, I certainly do. <laughs> Although, to be honest, they need a more well-behaved father before that'll happen. <laughs> maybe you think you need more time more rest, or whatever else you think you need. But just, just for a moment, consider with me, could it be that what you need more than any of those things is a God who gets personally and painfully involved in the realities of your life in order to bring new life to you? Do you know that's what you need? Are you even open to that possibility And do you know that's what you have in Jesus? We are all leaving a trail of death behind us. And you need a God who can bring life out of death. And in Jesus Christ, you have that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe in a God who makes dead people live. And that's what you need. You need him to enter into your life. And to take your trail of death and make it live. You see, through faith in Jesus, God has promised to start over in your life. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has promised to make all things new. Now, perhaps you're a forgetful person. And maybe you are horrible at rejoicing. And there's good news for you. Because the reality is you cannot rejoice enough or remember enough to deal with life as it really is. And the good news is that Jesus has done both of those for you. And I want to finish with just two points about that. Here's the good news. Even though we remember assignments, deadlines, song lyrics, maybe a YouTube video. And yet you forget God. He always remembers you. The very end of Matthew's gospel. What's the last thing he says to his disciples? What he says at the very end of his time with his disciples, he says, behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. If you want to remember God as your creator and redeemer, think about Jesus' promise to never forget you. And I promise you, you will begin to remember him. But also, there is more good news that even though we rejoice in our performance or getting a job or getting a new toy, yet you don't rejoice in God. He always rejoices in you. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews puts it. He says he describes Jesus joy this way. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus' joy and delight run so deep that he was willing to suffer and die in your place in order to win you back. That is the gospel that's held out to you, Christian or not. That through faith in Jesus, you become Jesus' joy, his delight. God's smile is upon you forever. And it is a gift which means you can't lose it ever. If you have a hard time rejoicing, if you want to rejoice, think about Jesus' delight in you. And you will, and he will become your delight. So then, how can you become a joyful realist? Hopefully, the answer is very clear now. You need to remember your creator, who is also your redeemer, until you find yourself rejoicing in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. And I pray that uh, though it may be unfamiliar, I pray that now it would be familiar. So much so that you would draw us to find life in the pages of this book that you have given us. And that it would lead us to the rest of your word. That we would see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. That we would run to him. And delight in him that we would remember you as our creator and in doing so discover you to be a God who is gracious and powerful, faithful and loving, just and kind. Father, we ask that you would have mercy on us today, that you would lead us to repent and to rejoice and to rejoice and to repent for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.